Are you a Christian who wants to go deeper into the roots of your faith? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Grafted, Jewish Roots of Christianity. This is a podcast for Christians who want to understand the Jewishness of Jesus and his word. I'm your host, Stephanie Pavlantos. I'm a bit of a Bible nerd. I'm also an author and a Bible teacher. In this podcast, we will stretch and maybe even challenge you to look at Scripture from a Hebraic point of view. We want to help you understand Scripture through the lens of the Hebrew language, culture, and history. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for being here. Today's podcast, I have Pastor Steve Neptune. He is an author, a teacher, He's the president of HarvestNet Institute and a pastor at Gateway Church in Aurora, Ohio. So thank you for being here and welcome. I'm excited to talk to you today. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this. Yeah, it's Talking good. about one of my so, favorite subjects. That's right. And we have a lot in common in that way because we have a passion for Israel. We have a passion for scripture and explaining and helping people understand all of this as far as what this these Jewish roots of our faith and the Jewish roots of Christianity and going back to Israel and going back to the Old Testament. And so would you explain and talk a little bit about where that started with you, how you got there and to where you are now? Sure, thanks. So uh, full disclosure, I am 69 years old, <laughs> born in 1952, born again in 1973, right in the middle of the Jesus movement. And Mm -hmm. I was shot from guns and full of excitement reading Hal Lindsey's book and the end of the world was coming. And we were witnessing to all sorts of people and seeing them saved. And it was exciting. And within my first year, I met this strange creature named Walter Lieber, who was Jewish and believed in Jesus. And we became fast friends. And Walter was a few years older in the Lord than I was. And so he was feeding me all sorts of theological books to read. He was one who, although he was Jewish and now believes in Jesus, he was still maintaining himself as a Jewish person. He wasn't denying his Jewishness. He later went on to found Tikvad Yisrael, the Messianic Jewish synagogue here in the Cleveland area. There were actually some people laying groundwork for that head. I should really say he was the first rabbi of that congregation. And that happened uh, about 19, I think it was 1978. So uh, I became fast friends with Walter and read all of the apologetic work about uh, how Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And the uh, scholar, Jewish scholar, Michael Brown, PhD in Near Eastern languages, uh, writing five volumes on Jewish objections to Jesus and uh, giving crisp answers. And so it was clear to me that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and I'm looking at all the various prophecies of his fulfillment. And so I felt that I was certainly not in any way anti-Semitic, and I felt like I was certainly able to talk with Jewish people about Jesus. But something very interesting happened to me in 2008. The Jewish Federation of Cleveland decided that they wanted to start an outreach to evangelicals, the evangelical community. Now, the Jewish, and there's about 325 Jewish federations throughout the United States. They kind of tie together Jewish life in various larger metropolitan areas, and they have dialogues with other people groups, uh, with uh, the Catholic bishops, with uh, the Black church, uh, the mainline churches, but they had never specifically opened up a dialogue with evangelicals. And the president of the Community Relations Council at that time, 2008. He was an attorney in the city. He was going to serve his three-year term. And the first thing he said he wanted to do was open up a dialogue with evangelicals because they support the state of Israel. And he got a lot of blowback. No, no, all those evangelicals want to do is convert you to Jesus. He says, no, we need to reach out to them. And so through a series of events, an organization that I'm a part of called HarvestNet Institute, HarvestNet Ministries, We are a coalition of Christian leaders, uh, both uh, church place and marketplace in the greater Cleveland area, that are leaning into God's vision for the citywide church. And under that umbrella, we're doing a number of things, praying together, doing school assemblies uh, in in various schools, uh, but we're cooperating together to do things in the city, leaning into that John 17 dynamic. Well, 
when the Jewish Federation wanted to reach out to evangelicals, it's one thing to reach out to a particular denomination, like the Southern Baptists have a, a district in the area, or the Assemblies of God. But how do you reach out to evangelicals? I mean, there's a mm-hmm. National Association of Evangelicals, but what would be local? So it just so happened providentially, they bumped into us, and we do kind of sort of represent something like a coalition of evangelical leaders. So I was dubbed <laughs> to be the point person for HarvestNet ministries to be involved with the Jewish Federation. And initially, we began having dialogues in which some pastors and some lay leaders from the evangelical community would get together with some rabbis and some lay leaders in the Jewish community. And we had wonderful times of discussion, just kind of talking kind of at a level one. So what is Judaism and what do they believe and what are the main denominations of Judaism? And then how do we think about evangelicals? Well, how do they fit in versus Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or or mainline? So we're having those kind of discussions. And later, my co-chair, Rabbi Stephen Denker, wanted to have a rabbi-pastor roundtable just with rabbis and pastors. So that began in 2013. And all this was very exciting. But Stephanie, in the meantime, I am a deer in the headlights. Because... Mm -hmm. Even though, okay, I've read the Old Testament, I teach in a Bible Institute, uh, I've had my training with Walter Lieber and Michael Brown and have proof texts for Jesus the Messiah. But as far as being with Jewish people on a regular basis and trying to explain how does this Jesus project, this this New Testament, how does that in any way, shape, or form tie in with the Old Testament or the, the Tanakh, as they call it? I really didn't have a good answer. Mm -hmm. And again, I have taught in our institute. I'm aware of the four views of the millennium and different ideas of eschatology. And yet I was painfully aware that none of those really checked all the boxes of how we ought to think about the end times. And so I kind of came into this thing with the cement very wet on where I ought to go with this. So Wow. Yeah, that's how, I, that's how I got baptized into this. And so it's I been bet. a, uh, it's been a, uh, so far, 14 year journey from 2008 to the present. And my bookshelves have just grown with books on all things Jewish, past and present. Oh, I get that. I get that. <laughs> I'm quite the reader as well. And so a lot of what I have learned have been through books, through YouTube videos, you know, where I just like take in what's being taught. And um, and it's so important because because God does want that relationship between the Jewish people and what we call the church. I mean, what you even go to talk about all the nations and, and we'll we'll go back to that because that's an important topic and subject for this. But I do want you mentioned the Tanakh and that is the the Jewish Bible. So obviously in in Israel or any Jewish household, they have what we call the Old Testament scriptures, which is what they call the Tanakh. So it's a very definite, different word. And it's a Hebrew word that talks about the different parts of the Bible, or as we call the Old Testament. But you also mentioned the replacement theology. Could you explain a little bit for somebody who might not know what that actually means? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. And Boy, in this whole area, we have terms, 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 and trying to define our terms. So it is Mm -hmm. important. And I I think the best way to describe this is simply to say, as we do a historic overview of the development of the church, we look at the pages of the New Testament, and it's a very Jewish-looking book. And part of the reason we know that, if I might just say, as I began really digging into this, several developments formed a confluence in the last, let's say, 40 to 60 years that have highlighted the Jewishness of Jesus and the Jewishness in the New Testament, such as the Holocaust, which clearly had, although Hitler was not a Christian and Hitler has full blame for that and the Nazi party, but there were antecedent roots of anti-Semitism that came out of Christian Europe, and that is undeniable. Mm -hmm. And it certainly prepared a soil in which a generic group of people, not only Germans, but Poles and others, Ukrainians, could easily buy into a very negative narrative about Jewish people. And so Holocaust studies made the church start to really re-examine its theology and how it has 
opposed itself toward the Jewish people. That's, that's a biggie. At the very same time, the state of Israel becoming a state, the Jewish people returning. And this got several people beginning to take a second look at the Bible because ideas of return of the Jewish people was always relegated to, oh yeah, there's prophetic scriptures about the people returning to the land, but that was under Zerubbabel. That was under Nehemiah and Ezra way back then, back in the sixth century BC. It has nothing to do with today, but here's a, a multitude of people moving into Israel and becoming a state that caused people to begin to relook at scripture. And then at the very same time, lo and behold, the Dead Sea Scrolls are discovered in a cave in 1947. Believe it or not, it took quite a while for those to roll out and actually become public to be published and to be examined by other scholars. It takes till 1992 for that to happen, Stephanie. But then finally, other scholars begin getting hold of this. And when they begin really looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is a whole podcast in itself, we won't Right. Go down that wormhole. <laughs> but it gives a picture of Second Temple Judaism, therefore the soil out of which the New Testament arises, that very clearly this early Yeshua Jesus movement is a Jewish movement founded on Jewish documents, etc. And then we have the explosion of archaeology. And again, because Jewish people came into control, there had been some archaeology done in the late 19th century. But when the Jewish people come and control the land, it just simply explodes. And so we're getting a clearer and clearer picture of the Bible, and particularly the New Testament. And this is not to say, Stephanie, that we didn't know anything about the New Testament before, but now it was coming into sharper focus. And so <laughs> I, I'm sorry for that little excursus as you ask, how did we get into replacement theology? But we have to establish the fact that we've now rediscovered mm -hmm. that the New Testament is a Jewish document. Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, and he's not coming to do away with the Jewish people or their promises, but rather he's coming to fill them out. And so that is a new scholarly approach to this. And this is in contrast to what happened surprisingly very early in the second century when the early church fathers began to distance themselves from all things Jewish. And that distancing itself became replacement theology. God was using the Jewish people. They were the chosen people, but they rejected their Messiah. Now the church, made up primarily of Gentiles, that is people of the nations, they are now the chosen people. God has nothing more to do with Israel. As one person described it, Israel are the booster rockets to get the shuttle launched. Once the shuttle is into outer space, the booster rockets drop off. Once Israel has launched Jesus, now Israel can drop away. We have no more need for this ethnic Jewish people. The, the universal cosmic Christ has been launched, and now we will have the universal church. And that is the whole concept of replacement theology that by and large has informed theology right up until the present hour, with a few exceptions. Right. Yes. And I've even heard it explained. Um, there's a well-known Bible study writer and teacher who talks about the Jewish people. It's like God just put them on hold. And then he kind of like, he picked up the phone and now he's talking to us Christians and us, the church. And, and that all this time throughout what we call the church age, the Jews, the Jewish people have just been on hold and they're kind of in this holding pattern yeah. that God's not really dealing with them, but that's, that's not really even true at all. Because, I mean, it's just not true at all that God's not dealing with the Jewish people. Yeah, well, this is a great point. And so maybe to bring back into our discussion here, as I mentioned, this replacement theology, sometimes it goes under the guise of fulfillment theology. Jesus fulfilled mm -hmm. all the Old Testament, therefore don't need that. And the Jewish people are wrapped up in the Old Testament, so we don't need them. That whole idea then around about 1830, there was an Anglican priest named John Nelson Darby, who was having great success winning uh, the Irish Catholics to Christ. But then the Church of England put out a decree that all members of the Church of England must, must swear allegiance to the King of England. Well, here are these Irish Catholics coming to Jesus, and they're starting to attend an Anglican church, but all of a sudden, they're being required to swear allegiance to the King of England. If you know anything about the history of Ireland and England, that kite ain't going to fly. That ship's not going to float. 
So instantly, Darby's success with the Irish Catholics fell overnight. He thought this was a travesty. He began doing a long Bible study and came to the conclusion that the problem is the, the church has been mingling things of the Old Testament with the church. And he came up with the idea that the church age has nothing to do whatsoever with Israel in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, he discerned God's dealings, God's dispensations, the way he dispenses his workings or dealings with people. He discerned seven different dispensations. So in the garden, there was the age of uh, innocence, and then that ended in Adam and Eve disobeying. And then there was the age of conscience up to the flood, and uh, that ended in the flood and so forth. And then there was the age of human government, age of the patriarchs, age of the law, starting with Moses, ending with the Pharisees. There'd be the thousand year reign, the millennium, and then finally the eternal state. So he saw the church as a parenthesis or that pause button. God's now calling out a people for himself. The church has nothing to do with Israel. The church has nothing to do with the earth. The church is not looking for any signs. The church can be raptured out at any moment. And then as one person, you mentioned the pause button. It's like you're watching a video push pause on Israel, now push the play button. And now God is working with Israel during the tribulation period and into the millennium. Mm -hmm. Now, in fairness, God does seem to be working with his people in slightly different ways before the cross than after the cross. So the idea that we might discern God working with people in different ways, that has some merit. And certainly, Darby is saying that God still has a program for the Jewish people. He's saying that the Old Testament prophecies have not been fulfilled, but they're not being fulfilled in the church. The church is something totally different. It gets raptured out, and then God fulfills his promises to natural Israel. And he talks about Israel being earthy and carnal, and the church being heavenly and spiritual to people. He'll even point to the promises. I will make you as the See Abraham as the stars of the heaven and as the sands of the sea. Sands of the sea is natural Israel. Stars of the heaven are the spiritual people, the church. And so that's how dispensationalism all through the 19th century and the 20th century poised its theology. But it did have this merit that it did see a place for the Jewish people. And as the German theologian Karl Barth said, dispensationalism is wrong, but it's wrong in the right direction. because it does keep a place for israel and so basically stephanie what we've been left with is take dispensationalism i know that's a big 50 cent word but just think of how lindsay late great planet earth or the left behind series and look good evangelicals and and broadly speaking there is going to be an end of time there is going to be jesus returning so i mean broadly speaking okay But as one said, the devil's in the details. Some of the details of that don't fully track with all the data in Scripture. So we've basically had two games in town if you're a sincere Christian. You either go with classic Hal Lindsey dispensationalism, or you revert back to supersessionism or replacement. The the church supersedes Israel, supersessionism, replacement theology or fulfillment theology. And this is characterized by the English theologian, brilliant theologian, N.T. Wright, and he has many acolytes and followers. And so, boy, it's cooler to be, a lot of people don't want to follow their parents' religion so much. So that was your parents' dispensationalism and all that Israel stuff. We're following the cool N.T. Wright now. And so there's a younger generation that's kind of, in, in a way, reverting back to replacement theology. And then when you have the Palestinians crying foul and we're being persecuted and because our whole culture is alerted to victim status israel who used to be viewed as the victims under the holocaust now they are the monsters they are the pariah state like south africa they are forcing the the palestinians into apartheid and so a younger generation is flocking to the palestinians and that narrative and the the replacement theology rather than a theology Stephanie, that is just now emerging. The sand, the cement's still wet, but it's not dispensationalism and it's certainly not replacement theology. Right. Right. That's good. That's a really good explanation of all of that because I think that we often, you know, I brought that up to somebody once and they just didn't have a, a single idea what I was talking about, but yet they were living it. You know, they were, they had that mindset of replacement theology, but yet they had no idea what the word meant. You know, so 
The other word before we get going is covenant, because covenant is an, also an important word that we hear a lot from Genesis to Revelation. But many of us don't really know how deep and how how important that word is, um, not just from the time of Abraham and Exodus and everybody, you know, from there, but also in our own life and in our own time. Yeah, great. Well, uh, yeah, the short little Bible study on that, which I'm sure you're aware of, is uh, Hebrew berit, which means literally to cut a covenant. The uh, Greek word that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and then the New Testament uses diatheke, covenant. To give a definition, one word, you know, we have a modern idea of contract, but it's stronger than a contract. We used to be able to point to marriage, marriage covenant till death do you part. Uh, But now it's easier to get a divorce than it is to fire somebody you hired last week. So marriage doesn't really capture it. So we really have to go back to either the pages of the Bible or even in other cultures where covenants are cut. But uh, in the pages of the Bible, for example, God has Abraham follow a procedure of making covenant that we all we actually find, and this is the benefit of archaeology. We have found this uh, in uh, the tablets from uh, Ugarit, the Ugaritic texts, where a covenant is made, where animals are cut in two, and the two parties walk between the animals. And the picture being, I am promising. A, A covenant is a promise, but it's like at the highest level because. Our politicians break promises as easily as they breathe air. And so what does a promise mean? We break our marriage vows. But this is, you want to talk about death to us, Bart? See those cut animals? Baby, we're talking, this means death. And oftentimes they would actually make a little mark in their body, a little cut of some kind, and then rub charcoal or something like that into it so that the mark would be there. By the way, I, I don't know how I did this twice. You'd think I would learn. In sixth grade, I stabbed myself twice with a sharpened pencil. I can still see those little marks in there, which you would, doesn't skin rot and replace. And it's still, <laughs> it's a tattoo, you know. So, right. so you, you bear the mark of the covenant. And what that means is if you're out and about and someone's going to mess with you, all of a sudden they see that mark. Uh-oh, I see the mark on Stephanie. I'm not just messing with Stephanie. I'm messing with her blood brothers, her blood sisters. There's a whole clan behind her that if I mess with her, I'm messing with them. And we're saying that we've entered into a sacred bond that all that I have is yours. All they have is mine. We see David and Jonathan making this kind of arrangement. So God mm-hmm. condescends to humans, specifically to Israel, using the customs of the day to say, I, God Almighty, and going to enter into a covenant with you. And they understood what that meant. Sometimes there were co-equal covenants. Sometimes there were suzerain covenants. That means you have a sovereign versus one that is below. And so the lesser would swear allegiance to the greater and give a certain amount of tribute each year, a certain amount of money. But in exchange, that sovereign, the greater one, would protect the lesser if bad guys invaded the lesser one's territory. And so it was a mutually beneficial deal. And by the way, we have that in modern geopolitical politics today. Little countries, particularly during the Cold, Cold War, had to align with Russia or align with America. Well, now the Cold War is broken up, but now they're aligning with China. Few are aligning with Russia. Some are aligning with America, and so that's a whole other discussion. But the whole idea that in a fallen world, you need alliances, and covenant is the strongest alliance possible. God makes covenant with Israel, and so... Part of the issue is God is not a covenant breaker. Right. So he's made a covenant with the Jewish, and I have to say with the Jewish people, because people say, yes, Steve, God made a covenant with Israel, but who is Israel? Because God changed the names of the now Israel is whoever is of faith. Well, Israel now refers to all those people that believe in Jesus. So the church is now Israel. That is a wrong and I've taken the time in my book to go into the exegesis of this, and it's not new with me. Other exegetes have done this. As as far back as 1580, Calvin's successor at Geneva, uh, Theodore Beza, was translating Romans 11 and saying, Israel means Israel, not the church. So this, this is absolutely key. God makes a covenant with the Jewish people. 
he's not a covenant breaker and you can't do alchemy and magic and say, yeah, but he changed the name or changed the people that represent the name. And so now the church is Israel and he ditched the natural Jewish people. That is simply not what's going on in the pages of the Bible. Yes, that's right. That's right. Thank you for that, because that, I think, is so important to understand that God never breaks his covenant. The covenant he has made with Israel, the covenant he has made with man, they are never broken. Not yes, like a, a New Testament will and, and all of that where you can contest a will. That's not the same. You can't contest a covenant. You can't change a covenant. And and that all goes into even in in your book and let me just give the title of your book Jesus and the Olive Tree Reengaging the Mystery and I want you to talk a bit, little bit about the mystery I want you to unpack that as much as time will allow because I know it's a big subject and but let me just say when I was teaching on what the mystery meant one time I took it all back to the church the mystery is the church and Now I just see so clearly how wrong I was because of what I've learned. And over the years of of the different teachings I've put myself under, how that is, my thoughts were just wrong. It was incorrect teaching. I mean, I, I researched it thoroughly, but it was still just incorrect from what I learned. So Reengaging the mystery and and what is that mystery? And you even cite um, the mystery of Israel. So if you could unpack that a little bit for us, I'd really appreciate that. Sure. Years ago, something struck me, and I, I included this example in my book. Zondervan began a series called the Counterpoint Series, in which they will look at different views of the Bible, different views of different doctrines coming from the Bible. So, for example, views of the millennium. There are four views of the millennium. There is post-millennialism, amillennialism, historic premillennialism, and dispensational premillennialism. <laughs> okay, so there's four views. Different views of hell. Mm-hmm. How do we view you know, ultimate judgment? Uh, eternal punishment, annihilationism, ultimate reconciliation. So, Throughout the history of the church, there have been these different views. Four views of baptism, five views of the Lord's Supper, five views of law and grace. And they have about 14 of these books in the series. Now, you and I could wish that the Bible was a little bit clearer. Of course, you and I, we hold exactly the right views on every one of those issues. Can we help (laughs) it if we're right? Interestingly, though, Zondervan did not do two or three views of Israel and the church. They never did that. It's interesting. And just now, just now, and I say just now, meaning like 2019, Mm -hmm. 2018, there are a couple of books coming out that are looking at different views of Romans 9 through 11 or different views of Israel and the church that they're they're really drilling down and looking at that seriously for the first time. So this is, again... A sharpening of our focus that's come about because of all these influences I mentioned before of the Holocaust, Israel becoming a state, Dead Sea Scrolls, archaeology. And you know what? I forgot to mention the whole rise of the Messianic Jewish movement, that unprecedented numbers of Jewish people were coming into faith in Yeshua HaMashiach, and yet they were not jettisoning their Jewish identity. So this is the re-engaging of the mystery. The mystery of Israel is, Paul says, I would not have you ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, this is Romans 11, that a blindness, a partial blindness has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles are come in, and then all Israel will be saved. So there is this partial blindness that has come into Israel. How, so how should we think about Israel right now? And one of the things that uh, I've seen some scholars do, and I, I tease this out quite a bit in my book, if we go back to the whole theme of Israel and the nations, we find that through the entire Bible. In the beginning, God creates a man and a woman. They begin multiplying in the earth. We come to Genesis 6. God judges the earth. He tells Noah, he renews covenant, fill the earth. But they don't do that. They build a Tower of Babel. So God does something he confounds languages and he creates 
nations. And we find that table of 70 nations in Genesis chapter 10. And the mm-hmm. Bible, several other places in the Psalms, in other places, talks about God creating the nations. Then in Genesis 12, he creates another nation separately, a new nation, the nation of Israel. And several times in the Bible, it says that the Lord created Israel. So he creates the nations, he creates Israel. And one of the things God is about, one of the great themes of the Bible is that God is the creator, God is the redeemer or the restorer. And so what God has created, he doesn't just nuke and ex nihilo out of nothing, create something brand new, but rather he takes that which he created and restores it. So there's going to be a restored, renewed earth upon which we shall live, and nations shall be renewed and restored. And lo and behold, this special nation, Israel, will also be renewed and restored and living on planet earth. So we find this theme of Israel and the nations early in the Bible, and God says, even when he creates that special nation, Israel, he says, I'm going to make a nation of you, Abraham, and through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And so right there, we set up a dynamic that's going to be Israel, but it's going to never be Israel just on its own. Israel vis-a-vis Israel in relationship with the nations. And we find that playing out all the way through when God actually brings Abraham into the land. Here's the promised one, Abraham. He's the one that carries the promises, but he's running into people of the nations in the land. Isaac runs into the same thing. Jacob runs into the same thing. Eventually, Joseph's down in Egypt. All the children, all the people of Israel, go, the family of Israel goes down into Egypt. And now they're dealing with Egyptians and also some others from the nations who have come down to Egypt during this great famine. Then they're brought out, aren't they? But as they're going through the wilderness, they've got this mixed multitude, various ones from the nations. So you have mm-hmm. Israel and the nations. And you have Amalekites one of these hostile nations that's attacking them. And then they have to go into the promised land. They've got to drive out the nations, seven of them that we know by name, out of the promised land. So here we are, Israel and the nations. Finally, we come to the kingdom. And there's Saul, David, and Solomon. But in all of that, David has to subdue the nations. And then you have under Solomon, Hiram is a friend of David's, and he's bringing building materials down and helping to build the temple. So you you still, under the United Kingdom, you have Israel and the nations. But then we find something unthinkable occur. The kingdom divides. And now it's the north and the south, Israel and Judah. And the north and the south, these are God's people, Stephanie. They fight each other. They're supposed to be one people. But no, Israel, Jewish people are separated and fighting each other. And then finally, Israel is carried away captive. This is unthinkable by the Assyrians. 150 years later, the southern kingdom, Judah, is carried away in 586 BC to Babylon. Now this is really unthinkable. The chosen people who are supposed to be in the land, they're out of the land. They're under the nation's domination. But then God returns them to the land, but it's only a small percentage of them about 50,000 that we have numbered in the book of Ezra. And so the majority of the promised people, the chosen people, are living outside the land in the diaspora. This This is a geographical separation. We had a political separation north and south. Now we have a geographical separation of the people in the land or a minority compared to the diaspora outside. And then as we read about Second Temple Judaism from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah right to the time of Jesus, we find different groups arising so that... um, Jacob Neusner, a prolific uh, Jewish author, a rabbi, refers, he says, it would be better to speak of Judaisms in the first Mm -hmm. century. You've got Sadducees, the priests. You've got the Pharisees. There's different stripes of Pharisees, by the way. There are the Herodians who are really committed to uh, Herod. You've got the Zealots who are fighting against Rome. You've got the uh, Samaritans uh, from Samaria. And they have their own uh, copy of the scriptures. They have their own worship place, but they consider themselves the true chosen people. And then you have the Qumran Essene group. Mm-hmm. And then there are several uh, lesser ones, uh, but they are around. And then in the midst of all this, another group arises that follows this carpenter from Nazareth. Uh, they're Yeshua followers. 
So there are multiple Judaisms in that first century. And what happens then is with the destruction of the temple, the Romans come in, all the other groups are killed off, and all you have left are the Pharisees, which become rabbinic Judaism. And you have the Yeshua followers, which is the Jesus movement, but it quickly gets grabbed by the Gentiles and isn't fully representing its Jewishness. And so now you have kind of a a Gentilized church and a uh, a rabbinic Judaism that's not quite the same as Old Testament or Tanakh Judaism. And you have those those two strands. Meanwhile, as we're talking about what is the mystery? Well, the mystery is that Yeshua comes to fulfill the covenant promises given to Israel to help them come into their inheritance because the project of Israel being a light to the nations is stalled out. They're not being that light to the nations. They were taken into captivity. Even when they come back, they're fighting amongst themselves. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, it's legalistic. They're certainly not being a light to the nations. Jesus is coming to really help the Jewish people truly live out the full implications of the Torah, the law, by bringing the power, he's going to enable the power of the Holy Spirit to come into them to live in the righteousness of the law, because they were constantly failing at that. And at the same time, he is going to open a door for the Gentiles, because you see, Stephanie, the whole Old Testament, or the Tanakh, pictures at the end of time, Israel is sort of at the center of things, and the nations are at peace with Israel, and they all worship the same God. Well, how are you going to get that? Well, Israel figured, well, a Messiah will come kind of like King David or Judas Maccabee. He'll kill all the bad guys, and then the Jews will be free, and we'll be reigning, and our Messiah will be reigning. Yeah, but where does that leave the Gentiles? They're either all dead, or else they're begrudgingly hating Israel's guts, but because they're under the thumb of Messiah, they kind of go along with it. No, God has a better idea. He sends his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, undergoes death, burial, and resurrection, And now as people hear this message of the kingdom, and Jesus told these parables of the kingdom, the mysteries of the kingdom, the kingdom's not going to come with a sword. It's going to come like a seed, a word that's going to be planted in soil. And when it finds good soil, it's going to grow and people are going to change. That happened to me September 16th, 1973. The word of the kingdom got inside me, began to grow. I became a Jesus follower and a lover of Israel. So I didn't have to have a a greater King David or Judas Maccabees kill me or force me at bayonet point to love the Jewish people or submit to them. I am actively working for their good in the earth because of their Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. So what happens in the first century is there are thousands of Jewish people who do respond to the words of Jesus. That's right. And Jesus said, I will build my congregation. Moses had his congregation. Jesus said, I will build my congregation. By the way, same words, both Hebrew and Greek, same same idea. And Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, the Lord your God shall raise up a prophet like unto me, and to him shall you listen. And any soul that doesn't listen to him, I will cut off. The New Testament puts forward Jesus uh, Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, as that prophet. And we're to listen to him. The Jewish people are to listen to him. And what he has to say, Stephanie, is not contradicting what Moses said, but rather it's it's filling out the implications of it. Look, the Pharisees knew you had to fill out the implications. Do no work on the Sabbath. Yeah, but what's work? And so they start defining what is work. Jesus comes to fill out the implications of the law or to also fill up and fill out the sacrificial system. He does all of this in his coming, Mm -hmm. and we're to listen to him. Well, many, many Jewish people in that first century listened to him, but lo and behold, some Gentiles begin to listen. And so in the first century, here's now the mystery. I know this is a long way to get around to it. The mystery is, in the first century, we see Jewish Yeshua followers and Jewish non-Yeshua followers. There's a split in the Jewish people. No surprise here, remember? There was a split in the northern and southern kingdom. There was a split between the diaspora and those that returned. There was a split between the Judaisms of the second century, Sadducees, Pharisees, Essenes. So we should not be shocked 
that there's a split. There is a split in the first century of Jewish people who believe in Jesus, Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus. But lo and behold, in addition to these Jewish people who believe in Jesus, a whole bunch of Gentiles begin believing in Jesus, and they change their ways entirely. They get rid of their idolatry. They get rid of their sexual immorality, and they join themselves to this band of Jewish believers. And that is part of that mystery, this this ecclesia, this, this body. And this is where I know what you were saying earlier about you were wrong about the church. Yet, probably yes and no, depending on how you look at it and things mm-hmm. you were reading. You could say no, but also some, I mean, the church in the sense of the ecclesia, the body of Messiah made up of Jewish people and of right. Gentile people is a mystery. We didn't, we couldn't quite get that just reading the Tanakh. We, we got that nations we saved, that nations would even be called the people of God, but we didn't get that it would be done this way. And right. that is the mystery. And this mystery is continuing on right up until a fullness comes, a fullness numerically. And I would say a fullness growing up into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. And as that happens, and as Jewish people are beginning to call on the name of the Lord, he will return. So I'm just going to stop mm-hmm. right there. We can say a lot more about that. Yeah, right. We can. Mysterious. And you're right, because it's it's not just about the church and the Jewish people. It's about a joining. That's what yeah. the mystery is. The fact that they could even envision, because even in Acts 10, you know, if you go back to Acts 10, Jesus was trying to tell Peter, don't say what I have made is unclean. What I've called clean, don't call it unclean. And he's talking about the Gentiles because this whole thing, and, and even their surprise that the Gentiles were receiving the Holy Spirit, they could have never fathomed that they would be joined together with Gentiles to come and study under the Yeshua and to follow and to love as one. And that's what I guess the mystery to them was that the Gentiles were included in all this. And, and it was just mind boggling. Like, I mean, we read that in Acts, like, they're coming, the Holy Spirit is coming on them. What's that about? You know, it's so what do we do about this? You know, and that's where Acts goes. It goes into what to do about all these Gentiles coming to faith in Yeshua. And it's Very a pretty good. amazing thing. It is. So, <laughs> and pretty well, let me just say, awesome. Well, I'm, glad, I'm glad you said that. Let me just say one more point about that. The mystery is that Jewish people are getting together with people of the nations, But the people of the nations, watch this carefully, did not turn into Jewish people. Right. They're people of the nations, but they've been transformed in Jesus in the same way that these Jewish people are still Jewish people, but they've also been transformed by their Messiah. Mm -hmm. And so this is where we get Paul's image of the olive tree. And that's why the title of my book, Jesus and the Olive Tree, By way of contrast, some people have said, oh, what you have in Christianity or in the body of Christ is a third race. You have Jews, Gentiles, but now there's a third race called Christians. So we put everybody, Jew and Gentile, into a blender, turn on the blend, turn on a high blend, and and now there's no distinction Mm -hmm. whatsoever. And they'll cite, there's neither Galatians 3.29, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, male or female, in Christ Jesus. Well, yeah, in our status before God, our status before God, there's no difference. But there are, I know there's confusion about this today, but there are distinguishments between male and female. There are distinguishments between Jew and Gentile, and there's distinguishments even between slave and free. And all of those categories and the way they ought to live their lives out are addressed within the pages of the New Testament. The distinctions do not go away. And and in the joining in the olive tree, the olive tree is a picture of the people of God. And in the Old Testament, that people of God is Israel. And it's drawing from the taproot of the patriarchs, and also we could just say God himself who who made the promises. Now Gentiles, but specifically different ones of the nations, are being grafted in. And if you do studying on grafting, even just a just a cursory glance, just even looking at the internet, you've got to be obviously careful with the internet. But this is just commercial grafting. They'll point out you can have one tree with four different kinds of apples, one tree, mm-hmm. a small tree with five different kinds of plums. I found one one tree with 10 different kinds of dates on it. Wow. 
And then another guy was doing olives and he was advertising three different kinds of olives. And this guy said, and when you do this grafting, it does two things. It makes each individual olive bigger and richer and juicier. And it makes the yield, the number of olives on the tree greater. But year after year, Stephanie, it's not, it's not as though you graft this. Uh, if you graft a Macintosh onto a uh, golden delicious apple tree, the next year they don't turn out golden delicious. They're still Mac, year after year, they're Macintosh, Macintosh, Macintosh. Right. They, they, they keep that distinguishing, but they're drawing from the same rich root. And so that is the imagery happening in the olive tree. You have the various nations being grafted, Chinese, or we can say Oriental, whatever that, however you want to make the people group. If, if Koreans, Japanese, and Chinese, mitochondrial DNA, if they're all lumped together or if they're separated out, God will figure that out. I'm from Northern Europe, Teutonic, German, you know, and Anglo-Saxon, how we try to, but there are clearly these different people groups in the earth, and there will be these people groups into eternity. God loves diversity, and the nations bring richness, as does Israel. And so in, etern- in I think, a thousand-year reign, but certainly in eternity, there will be Israel and these various nations all worshiping the one God. Mm, that's good. And I love what you said. I mean, the whole Macintosh and, and different apples is is truly amazing to think that. And then to see that God has a hand. Um, I mean, he invented it. You know, this is what he put, you know, it's like we're just building on what he has already done. Yeah. And and the fact that he loves diversity because Satan gets in there and he's like, no. No, don't love diversity. Don't love what's different. You want everybody to be like you. And that's exactly what Hitler was after, everybody to be like him. It was really just such a profound statement. God loves diversity. And he does. Or he wouldn't have made us so different. And he wouldn't have made us to look different, to act different. You know, the different talents we have, it's all there. And um, and, and I wanted to go back to something because when I was in my um, early 20s, back in the 80s, um, late 80s, I decided to go to my like a church without my parents, you know, go to a church yeah. that they weren't going to. So and I remember meeting a Jewish man who was going to this church. Well, that was the first time I had met a Jewish man in my Christian church. Hmm. And it was like, what is this about? You know, and. And people came to start recognizing or recognizing, but also um, introducing him, you know, as this is a Jewish man who has come to love the Messiah. He has come to Jesus. And even hearing about how he basically his whole family turned on him. He was excommunicated from his family. And I remember even then thinking, how cool is that one of God's chosen people are in my church, worshiping along with me and everyone else. And as I grew up and matured in Christ, and I, you know, I started realizing there are more and more Jewish people coming to Christ. And there's what we call, you you mentioned the Messianic Judaism. And I think that the Lord is just opening doors because we have so many of these Jewish rabbis teaching, writing books, putting their stuff on YouTube, putting their stuff in podcasts, putting their stuff everywhere where we as believers in Jesus, Christians, Gentiles can have access to it. And I think that just for me, you know, for me, I guess I've seen it more over the last 10, maybe 15 years, but it's just exploding. And God's people are coming into the kingdom and we have no choice but to start worshiping with them as God intended. Because some of them are going to be in our churches. Some of them are going to be coming to a Baptist church, to a non-denominational church, to a Nazarene church, you know, as well as their own congregations where they can, where they can find those. So it's, so this information and what you're sharing and what this podcast is all about is basically welcoming these messianic people into our worship into and, and understanding our relationship with them through the word of God and what he intended. 
Very well said. And, you know, I was just thinking you and I had talked uh, off camera about one issue that's probably worth mentioning here, just parenthetically, because this is all, and you just mentioned like in the last 10 or 15 years, this is all happening right now. It's all very exciting. And whenever the Lord is moving, we know that the enemy tries to move. So where seed is sown for wheat, tares are also sown. Mm -hmm. And so there are some funky teachings around when we hear the term Jewish roots. And so we right. also just need to say, in all fairness to our listeners, uh, caveat emptor, buyer beware. You just mm -hmm. kind of need to be careful with uh, sources because there are some right. rather silly, if not pernicious things being taught out there. Mm -hmm. But we don't get discouraged with that. That just tells us where there's the counterfeit. There must be the real because nobody counterfeits $3 bills. Right. Very good point. And, um, and even among reading even very well-meaning Yeshua loving Jewish people, you, you know, the saying, um, two Jews, three opinions. I mean, right. you're going to get different opinions and it's, it's no different than any other denomination we have in the Christian church. I mean, I came from a more or less very conservative church. And then once I married and got everything involved in, you know, church and my husband, and I went to a more charismatic church. And I mean, and then we learned more there than what I had done, you know, early in my belief system. And there were things that were, you know, kind of against each other, you know, kind of sure. um, contradictory in a way. Um, but so we're always going to have that because yeah. Jesus is the only one with all the truth. And we try to to put it in the words that we understand to the best of our ability. And sometimes yes. it just doesn't come out right. So yeah. Paul said, we see in part, we know in part. So right. uh, we right. need to walk in that with humility. Mm -hmm. And be teachable, right? Yeah, good, good. Always teachable. Yeah. And we might if think we have teachable. a whole something and then allow facts, allow Bible to, okay, I thought that was right, but I guess that's not right. And so, because there's so many opinions, and I think just taking and understanding and learning, being willing to learn, being willing to be taught that, hey, maybe some of your traditions are not necessarily rooted in scripture. And being open to say, okay, well, show me, show me the proof. Let me see this and work it out, you know? Thank you so much. I appreciate you being here and your wealth of information. And uh, it's been so enjoyable to me. And I think that you've had such good stuff to share with us. So thank you. I appreciate it. Well, Stephanie, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for inviting me on. You're welcome. And hopefully we'll have you back to talk about more. Love to do it. Thanks for listening to Grafted Jewish Roots of Christianity. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and recommend it to your friends and family. And don't forget to check out my Bible study, Jewels of Hebrews. That's all for today. See you next time.